Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series in the book of Revelation entitled The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 to 11, as we join Dr. Newfeld in a message entitled No More Delay. Years ago, while I was involved in pastoral ministry, a reporter from the Vancouver Sun showed up to do an article on our church. You know, the church was growing quite rapidly and by God's grace had really reached a size that that no church in the province had ever reached. And, And he showed up to do an article on what was happening. And I was anything but pleased because I had seen the man's articles before and and I assumed that what he would write would be his own particular slant and that probably would include items that were anything but flattering. Nonetheless, there he was. And I later found out that he had gone and interviewed a number of our people and his question was, do you believe in the second coming of Jesus? Well, everyone he interviewed said, yeah, he did. And, And some went further to say that they actually eagerly anticipated his coming. But I was left with the impression that the reporter was both amazed and somewhat bemused. I think he thought this to be but one more example of the strange and fantastic things that these people actually believe. Now, I, for my part, well, I thought that we could have said, you know, that's not only the fantastic thing that we believe. We actually believe that a dead guy isn't dead anymore. We believe he walked on water and drove out some real beings called demons. We believe he healed desperately sick people, and through his death, we believe that he paid for the sins of all who trust in him. I wanted to say, you have no idea the things we actually believe. And talking about the coming of Jesus, well, we think that when he comes, he's going to appear on a war horse, and it's going to be an act of war, and he'll defeat the earth. But as I thought about that, I also thought about 2 Peter 3, verse 4. Peter is speaking about the scoffers in his day. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, I won't elaborate on Peter's response to the criticism, only to point out that from one perspective, well, these scoffers seem to be right. All these prophecies and nothing to show for it. All things carry on as they did before, and yet some people, well, they just keep believing. But as we've seen from Revelation, that's that's exactly what Revelation predicts. The breaking of the seven seals actually corresponds well with what Jesus taught in his famous Olivet Discourse. In his famous Olivet Discourse, Jesus talked about wars and and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and his gospel preached to the very ends of the earth, being preached to all nations, always in the presence of a world that's fragile and quick to go to war and quick to persecute. I mean, all these things, said Jesus, are but the beginning of birth pains. And this is not the end. This is no cause for alarm. In many ways, the world goes on as sinfully and as painfully as before. Now, of course, Revelation speaks that same way in the image of the breaking of the seven seals. The end is not yet while there are wars and scarcity abounds and and the taking of human life. And if I might interject here, let me say that speaking for myself, that's why I actually never get excited when when people talk about world events that are surely a precursor to the end. I mean, you've heard them all, everything from Israel becoming a nation to the creation of the European Union to the possible invasion of Israel by Russia to debit and credit cards that are moving us toward a cashless society to even the breaking down of public morals in the Western world and further to weapons of mass destruction. I mean, you get the idea. These things are not the blowing of the trumpets, nor do they signal that the trumpets are about to blow. We've all heard the theories. 
Everything from four blood moons to coming sabbatical year cycles and the year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. You know, I recently read an article that said since Rome is a city was has parts of it that are crumbling, well, that's got to be the destruction of Babylon predicted in Revelation 18. So we must be in the end times. You know, that's all silliness. I think it's high time that we stop all the fantastic science fiction-like theories we have of end times. See, none of that stuff is actually taught in the Bible. Almost all of that comes from how we imagine Bible prophecy works its way out, not from what the Bible actually says. And because we're all prone to speculation, all manner of skeptics have disbelieved and they've mocked because of endless speculation. See, I remember years ago hearing a a popular union leader in Canada, and he was saying that his dad was a preacher, but that he had rejected his dad's teaching. He said, my dad was always talking about the end times, and none of that stuff he talked about ever happened. After a while, he said, I just stopped believing. And sometimes our endless speculation has been the cause of scoffers. You know, but as Revelation unfolds, it does tell us that there will be a day, and that will come suddenly when the scroll is opened, and suddenly God's judgment will fall. And just before the last trumpet sounds, John, the author of Revelation, has a word for God's people. A time is really coming when there will no longer be any delay. Now I'm reading Revelation chapter 10, verses 5 to 6. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The angel being presented here is a mighty angel, one of God's chief angels, perhaps even Gabriel, who comes with the authority of God. He's got a message for John, and therefore, through John, a message to us. The message he has is contained in a scroll, which he's holding in his left hand. The angel's presence is overwhelming, and the authority that he wields is the authority that's given to him by God. But before he delivers his message, he lifts his hand to heaven. He takes an oath. And as he takes his oath, we hear him swearing by the authority of the living God. He has a message from God, and he swears to God the truth of his declaration, there will be no more delay. And just before we move on, let me just for a moment get a little sidetracked here. You know, the older King James Version translated this verse which says, there will be no more delay as time shall be no more. You know, and from that translation and others like it, we have a hymn which says, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. And that's led some Christians to believe that when eternity happens, time simply ceases to exist. Uh, But I, I think this translation, time shall be no more, I think is not the right translation. It really should be translated, there shall be no more delay. And furthermore, there really is no biblical support at all for the idea that time comes to an end in eternity. I think for our purposes, it's far more biblical to sing, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. See, the song anticipates time carrying on in heaven. Indeed, when the book of Revelation finally describes heaven, it will make use of the image of 12 months and trees yielding fruit in each season of the year. You see, time is a sequence of events, and the promises of God is that there really is a day coming when the sequence of events, even while they carry on, will no longer be interrupted by death or sin. 
No, it's not time that ceases. It is sin and death that ceases. I think that's the good news. And so forgive me, that was my little detour. Let's get back to the text. Immediately before the last trumpet sounds, the angel announces that there will be no more delay. You know, back in chapter 6, the martyrs under the altar were told to rest just a little while longer, to remain patient until the full number of martyrs have come in. The delay before the second coming of Jesus, at least from the human perspective, has seemed so long. Scoffers have now multiplied. But God is working out his purposes. There really is a day coming when God has worked out his purposes and the delay is going to be removed. But since the book of Revelation still continues on for a number of chapters, I mean, after this announcement, we're left to ponder what exactly is it or what is the delay that is now removed in chapter 10? I think the answer is that up to this point in time, God will no longer delay the final judgment of the human race. You see, up till now, the trumpet blast brought great suffering to the human race, but the human race was still given time to repent. From now on, says the angel, the time of repentance is past. The delay that was caused by God's mercy and his long-suffering character is now removed. Mercy is now not offered. This then is an awe-inspiring announcement. The mocking that everything carries on as before, The idea that there will always be a time to straighten out my life when I want to on my time. The idea that time will always be on my side. At some point in the future, that delay is going to be taken away. No more time to repent. One day an angel is going to make an announcement and time, that is the time to repent, will be gone. And all that's left is judgment without mercy. What grace it is to hear about this now, for hearing about it can change our hearts. We would take the opportunity to say, Oh, Lord God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. New episodes of the Truth and Life Today video series will be airing every week this month discussing issues of faith and Christian living stimulated through the questions of viewers and listeners across the country. This month we'll discuss worship, its importance, the keys to effective worship, and some of the worship challenges that face our churches today. We'll discuss the often hot topic of the roles of a man and woman in marriage based on Ephesians 5, the critical significance of the believer in sharing their faith, and much more. We're so excited that you're continuing to send in your questions. And if you haven't, and you'd like an issue discussed, well, you can send your questions through backtothebible.ca and click on Truth and Life today. And for more information or to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, especially during our fiscal year-end campaign, visit backtothebible.ca or call us today at 1-800-663-2425. After the angel announces the end of delay, the action around chapter 10 begins to take shape. I'm reading verses 9 and 10. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in the mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. 
you know, as, as strange as that account is, for those of you who know your Bible well, this, this will remind you of the experience that the prophet Ezekiel had when God called him to be a prophet. So I'm reading Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll. Go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you, and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, in the context of Ezekiel, that was his call to ministry. The prophet was called to thoroughly digest the Word of God so that as a prophet, he would be thoroughly aware of the ways of God, and he would know how to communicate the Word of God to rebellious people. Eating a scroll, well, it's like digesting what God has to say. But why is the scroll sweet in his mouth? Well, that too is not really a mystery. For instance, listen to the words of Psalm 119, which, as you might remember, is the longest psalm in the Bible. For 176 verses, verses that cover everything from A to Z, the psalm is dedicated to how precious are the words of God. How precious is the law of God. At one point in in verse 103, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now, in Psalm 19, it says very much the same thing. Speaking about the law, it says in verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And so the words in Revelation 10 verse 11 should not sound strange at all. The image of eating a sweet scroll is a very well-known Old Testament image. Prophets are often told to eat God's word, and as they do, their testimony is that the taste of God's words are precious or sweet. I mean, Jeremiah said so in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. He said, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to be a joy and the delight of my heart. And so I can only imagine the scene in Revelation 10. The angel approaches John with a scroll and he tells him to eat it, and John would know exactly what this means. He's been called to prophesy to what he has seen. He's a prophet of God. He takes his place next to the prophets who have gone before him, and he's ready to speak a very precious word from God. See, but what happens next must have shocked John. As expected, the scroll tastes as sweet as honey, but after he's swallowed it, his stomach becomes bitter. He's having a horrible reaction. Perhaps he feels overwhelmingly sick, so much so, you know, he's consumed with illness, kind of like a sick person saying, you know, I think it must have been something that I ate. But what does it mean? Why is the scroll creating this reaction? In fact, I need to point out no previous prophet had that reaction. You know, I have in my last discussion of Revelation 10 made the point that the contents of this scroll is the message of chapter 11. You know, without going into chapter 11, for we're going to discuss that, let's at least be aware of what's coming. The holy city is going to be trampled. Two witnesses will prophesy in sackcloth for 42 months. The the earth's leaders are turning against them, and then a drama follows. See, the message of chapter 11 is going to take some time to unpack, but at the very least, we're going to see that this is an alarming message. Now, if that's the message of the scroll, then it would seem to me that the scroll becoming sour is a message that the church of Jesus Christ has got to hear. Before we come to the judgment seat of God, the church will have to endure a very great trial. As we will see, the the fierce backlash of the judgment of God on the human race will be directed against the people of God. 
to the faithful, to speak prophetically to a culture that does not want to hear. Well, God is telling his people in the last days, there will be a great outpouring of satanic opposition. When chapter 11, the witnesses have finished their testimony, they're going to be killed and their dead bodies are going to be exposed to the joy of a sinful earth. That's but a precursor to the arrival of the man of lawlessness and the hatred of the people of God. But as I've said, we're going to deal with the message of Revelation 11 next. But for now, let's stay with the image of the scroll becoming bitter in John's stomach. At the very least, the image is two things. The words of God are precious, but the cost that comes from finding his word sweet is a bitter cost indeed, because these words will incite hatred. Now, of course, in some ways, that's what the seven churches of Revelation were already experiencing. They have been found to be the treasured possession of their God. The church of Sardis was told that they would be clothed in white and no one would blot their name out of the book of life. Church in Philadelphia was told that they would be a pillar in the temple of God and that the name of their God would be written upon them. And the church of Smyrna was promised a crown of life. And the church of Pergamum was promised a white stone, the stone that judges used in trials in which a defendant was pronounced innocent. The church of Thyatira was promised authority over the nations. I mean, think of it. Innocent before God, washed in the blood of the Lamb, given a crown to wear, ruling forever with Christ. I mean, the list of promises just continues to grow. And as they grow, the sweetness of the words become ever more sweet. Now, that word is not for them alone. It's it's a word for us as well. The words to the seven churches were intended to be read by all God's people through the ages, and what was said to them is applied to us. As we remain faithful, we remember that we should meditate on those promises. Those are promises that motivate all God's people to live faithfully. But there remains a bitterness. The white-robed martyrs come to mind. The necessity of faithful endurance in a a hostile world comes to mind. Branded as an enemy of Rome comes to mind. The church in Smyrna was told, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. I mean, that comes to mind. And all of that reminds us that when Jesus told us that we must bear our own cross, that if they persecuted our Lord and Savior, they would also persecute us. It may be that the mark of God is on the foreheads of his people and it protects us from the wrath of the lamb, but not from the wrath of the beast and his followers. And so it may be that the sour scroll is supposed to remind the believers that faithfulness to the word always brings about suffering. You know, I see another meaning here as well as the one I've already mentioned. When John prophesies judgment upon the world, which sounds to us like, you know, hellfire and brimstone preaching, he's always to remember that bitterness of that message. No truly godly prophet who warned of judgment ever did so with anything less than a heavy heart and a tear in his eyes. Prophets don't rub their hands in glee as they announce judgment. They do so praying and pleading with God that some would hear and turn and be saved. Now I move now to the last part of chapter 10. Verse 11 says, And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and and languages and kings. You know, John's told of the nature of his ministry. As the rest of Revelation unfolds, and from this point on, Revelation chapters 11 to 18, they're going to concentrate almost entirely upon God's judgment. But Revelation chapter 19 to 22, they're going to concentrate almost entirely on God's salvation and the glories of heaven and the fulfillment of the promises of God. 
John is prophesying about the consummation of world history. This message of Revelation is about many peoples and nations and languages and kings, and it's also a message to them. Everyone should listen to these words. See, as we will see, even though there will be no more delay, the end is not yet, it is still to come. And when the seven trumpets sounds, the final era is indeed upon the earth. God's wrath will be poured out and experienced to a degree that makes the previous example seem like but a beginning. But the world to come will also make the most pleasant parts of this world seem but a small thing. You must again prophesy. Your work's not yet done. There's a divine compulsion. Tell the whole story of the time of the end. Leave nothing out. Don't let people become complacent. Don't let them be mockers and scoffers. And if you will, this is the reason the book of Revelation must be constantly taught. Until the coming of our Lord, people must be taught this book so that they don't become weary of well-doing. Until the coming of our Lord, people who are lost and living in their sin must also be warned, turn from your sin and turn to Christ. But the message of wrath and salvation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, this message must never cease until Jesus actually does come. And that reminds me again of the reporter who had come to visit our church so many years ago. Since he really didn't know what to ask people, he was left with the one question that he still remembered. These people actually think that the end of the world is coming and they think that Jesus is going to return and they have great hope. That's great. I'm so glad he remembered that message of the church. So let's, like John, continue to tell the story. Let's never cease remembering that our Lord is coming soon. John, there's some incredible images here, uh, and they mean so much, and they say so much. So it, it brings me to the question, why do you think we're in a time in history right now where we mention Revelation so little? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we have disagreed as a Christian church about Revelation. And Ben, I know that there are people that will not agree with my approach to Revelation and may agree with a number of different parts, but I hope we don't get caught up in that. I hope what we really get caught up in is the assurance of the coming of the Lord. And we need to talk about that. I mean, the Bible is filled with promises of the second coming of Jesus. In fact, the Bible even goes on to tell us that motivation for godly living, that is when things become bitter, that our motivation is the sweetness of the second coming of Christ. So, you know, getting back to the reporter that came to visit us, it really did amaze me that the one question that he knew that Christians held to, they believe in the second coming of Jesus. And boy, I, I just want that to be true of all of us today. So let's keep talking about the coming of Jesus. Let's not concentrate on our differences. Let's concentrate on the glory to be revealed. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us again today, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We teach the Bible. Simple, but describes the core of mission at Back to the Bible Canada. Everything done is stimulated by a passion for connecting people to Jesus through the teaching of His Word. That's the purpose behind the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. John Newfeld and ministry programs like Laugh Again and In Doubt. June is a critical month that allows Back to the Bible Canada to finish our fiscal year well and create a new launching pad for future ministry. This year's goal is $338,000. The goal is a great challenge, but it allows for the ministry to be sustained and new opportunities initiated. 
As an incentive, a group of ministry friends have committed to a $75,000 match campaign. So for every dollar, 50, 500, whatever your gift might be, will be matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. If you believe in this ministry, join us with your investment in Bible teaching today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.